This is My Finest Work, where artists tell us the story behind their favorite projects to help us understand what makes a magnum opus. And here are your hosts, co-founders of Dog Ear Creative, Maureen Harmon and Dan Morrell. Today on My Finest Work, we welcome Vicki Glumbaki, an award-winning journalist, editor, and consultant who's worked inside the ivory tower and in the commercial world. Her work has appeared in Parents, Reader's Digest, Women's Health, Philadelphia, The Daily Beast, Salon, Playboy, Ladies Home Journal, and others. She's appeared on Oprah and The Today Show and is the author of The Second Nine Months, One Woman Tells the Real Truth About Being a Mom. Vicki's career started at the Penn Stater before she headed to Philadelphia Magazine, where she wrote the piece she will discuss today, What Katrina Gave Michael, which tells the story of a man with a failing heart and the tragedy that gave him new life. Join us as Vicky discusses the jump from high red to commercial, mixing the personal with the professional, her writing process, and the art of being flexible as you approach a story. As we talk about my finest work, one of the things we do is we ask our guests to come on and choosing of their finest work or the work that made them most proud. And can you tell everybody what that piece was and give us the gist for those who wouldn't have read it and are just listening now. Okay, so I would call it more the piece that made me the most proud. And it was called What Katerina Gave Michael. And it was written like maybe 20 years ago. And it was the story of a heart being transported from a person who died in an accident to the person who eventually received it as a transplant. What my idea ended up being, and I didn't have it when I started it, was to follow the heart, to everyone who touched the heart. Vicki, where were you working at the time when you wrote this? And how did that story sort of come to you? Well, I was at Philadelphia Magazine. It was early. I had just gotten there. I was super duper intimidated. I had come right from the Penn Stater. And everybody there was like real. And I felt like not real. And they thought I wasn't real. I remember being on the elevator when I first started working there. Tim Baldwin, who was the art director. It was my very first day. We were all going out to lunch. I was a senior editor. And he said, so he's British. What? What's the circulation of the Penn State? And I expecting me to say like... 20,000. And I, I said 140,000. And he was like, like, I immediately got cachet for and status. So anyhow, I was really nervous to write there because everybody was super smart and very experienced. And it was a whole different ball game. So I thought, as you know, writing for a city magazine or any commercial magazine is more pressure because there's, I, I don't know, it just felt heavy and big. So I was trying to find something that would be super narrative. And the gift of life was doing a, like a, they do an annual conference. The gift of life is the donor, organ donor, probably a nonprofit. And every year they did a big conference kind of where all the recipients and all came and they were at a hotel and conference center and did donation things. I mean, celebrated their lives. So I went to this. I had no, I just went. I mean, I I don't even know how I knew about it. I might have seen it in the paper. And I went 
I walked in and there was this huge, you know, banquet room with gazillions of tables and all of these people, very big celebratory room, tables, 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 all these recipients, organ recipients whose lives literally were based on the fact that they received an organ and tons and tons of people, positive, like this very big, happy vibe. And I was kind of watching that. It, it was like the beginning of a session. And I saw this very small group of people walking in another direction. And they were walking into what amounted to be a chapel. And that was the group of the donor families. Hmm. Very small, very few people. And of course, I, I was like, I'm going to go that way. And so I walked into this chapel feeling like a total jerk. I mean, I, it, it felt like that moment where you hear the most horrible thing in an interview and you're like, yes, like, this is going to be great. I, you know, I walk into this room and I'm with this smaller group of people and people were just talking about, you know, kind of exactly what I saw, which was the difficulty of being in that place and feeling happy about it. I swear there were 10 people in there. And one of them was this woman who had this shocking platinum blonde hair. And she was, she looked, you know, she was kind of my age-ish, a little older, and she just was very somber and spoke about the fact that her daughter had died in an accident and it was very new and that her heart and other organs had gone to someone. And she was just very open, super Philly, very, you know, Doylestown accent, really talkative. And so afterwards, I went up to two different people, family members, and said, hi, you know, I'm possibly working on a story for Philadelphia Magazine. And she said, yeah, you can call, you can call me. And so that began this story that she and her wife invited me to their house. They had made these huge dinner for me. Their grandson, who was the daughter's son, was there. I, I, they were just welcome. I'm still friends with them on Facebook. They still, you know, it was just the, it was exactly the right thing, but I never knew what the story was. Like I, I had no idea. It took a lot of time just to figure out how to find who got what organ and would they be willing to talk and how, what was this going to be? And as it turned out, the guy who was the recipient of her heart agreed to do it. And then to talk to me and also invited me to his home and and whatever. And that's when I kind of had this idea of like, I, I kept just imagining the heart as it's as a thing. And how does that move? Like, how does it, how does that move from one place to another? And it's not, this is not like some story that hadn't been written before. I, it's not like I came up with, oh my gosh, I'm going to do an organ donor story. But it hadn't been done in Philly Mag. And I don't think it had been done like that, where, or at least I didn't see it. And so it was a uniquely Philadelphia story. Everybody was from Philly. Everybody was very Philly. And so that took a lot, it was this huge process. But my goal when I started it, once I figured out kind of what I was doing, 
I didn't want a single assumption in it. Every single word in it, every single quote, every single thought that is written is true. They said to me, what did you think at this moment? I thought this, and that's what I wrote. I wanted to be absolutely pure. So let me ask you something about that, though, Vicky, because the level of detail in this is intense, right? There's this scene where somebody's pulling off a sweatshirt. You're very specific in your language. How long did it take you to build the trust to get to that? Like, obviously, you walked into the chapel and you immediately started a trust building exercise. But all around, right, you have to gain a subject's trust to get them to give you that level of detail. How do you do that generally? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know, but people tell me things. I have always been just blown away by the things that people say to me. Sabrina Early, who is a writer who I worked with before at Philly Mag and has gone on to have lots of crazy things happen to her in her career, but is literally one of them has the most integrity of literally anybody I've ever edited. She would say that if she walked into a, a interview room and or walked into interview someone, she would be stoic. She would not react to them. She would not if if something they were saying to her was relatable, she wouldn't say, you know, I can relate to that because my grandfather or because this, that and the other thing. I am the complete opposite of that. I'm right there. Like I invest in them and not fake. It's not fake that I, I mean, I just enjoy it. Right. So I'll, I mean, I can recall crying while Terry, the mom was talking to me, telling me the story. And also, you know, she was the right source. I mean, she took me driving around. We went to the spot where the accident happened. She you know how they have crosses and flowers on the side of the road. Yeah, yeah. She had a memorial. She had that. She went over. I mean, she was just very willing and giving and open. That's not always the case. Like those the surgeons and stuff that I talked to, I mean, they they do tons of surgeries. I had to really get them to remember who she was. Who is this? I don't remember. I don't, you know, and they don't want to say anything, but it's just a matter of actually genuinely and authentically being interested in what they're saying. Yeah, in the moment, there is nothing else on earth except that person I'm talking to. I know that's how that works. But I was going to ask you a little bit about that in terms of like, it's very hard to separate, at least I find, to separate yourself personally from some of these, especially the super emotional touching stories like this one. And so when you said that you were going to talk about this, I was thinking about like Vicky, the writer, but also Vicky, the mother and Vicky, the <laughs> Vicky. And so I, I'm just curious about how do you try to separate yourself in the writing of it? I know in the interviews, you're engaged in the conversations, but in the writing of it, how do you kind of not let it haunt you or does it? Ah, well, I was not a mother then, which probably made that easier yeah. in a big way. I read it differently now. I mean, I've written, I wrote a book that was extraordinarily personal about my experience as a mother. And I did have to write that as a separate, there were like two people in that. There was like the writer writing the story who had to be brutal with the writer writing the story. And honest. Yeah, but brutal. You know, <laughs> to kept saying like, dude, I mean, I remember writing... I were, oh, yeah, this is a good story. This is kind of where that comes from, I think. When I was at Penn State, I was writing my senior thesis, which was on body piercing, and it ended up getting 
published in Playboy. And that was the only thing I published for 10 years. So let's just own that that did, was not like an entree to like, <laughs> but I wrote it and I gave it to Nancy Marie Brown, who was the editor of Research Penn State. So she talked about like, she was like, she had no emotion. She was a very hard woman. And I was writing something in there about how, I don't know, am I allowed to talk about this? I'm going to talk about it. There was like a, this guy who showed me a penis piercing. And I was like, I mean, I thought it was like, what, 1920? And I'm sitting there like, Ugh. and I wrote in the piece like, oh, this wasn't sexual. There was nothing sexual about this. And in the in the margin, Nancy Marie Brown wrote bullshit. <laughs> uh, and, and I remember thinking, you're right, that's bullshit. Like I was protecting myself and protecting my source and protecting whatever innocence or whatever. I was trying to do and I was just not being honest about any of it. And from that point on, it took, I mean, the honesty with yourself is like the hardest part, but like writing about it has to be separate. Writing about your family and writing about writing personal essay and about your neighbors and about your community like I did for years, you just have to know how to, you just can't, you have to separate it or else you might get run out of town. Yeah. Or run someone out of town, which did happen. Thanks. Well, all right. Hold on. One more question on this story itself, right? Because mm -hmm. we already mentioned that there's like a ton of research you did for this. I can oh, right, only right. imagine how many notes, like how many notebooks you would have filled out for something like this. How do you organize your notes and reporting before you start the process of writing? For me, I believe in the key to any story is in the order of the information. I, how you tell a story is the, is essential. The architecture of a story to me is more important than anything. So it's like a joke, right? If you tell a joke out of order, it doesn't have an impact. So in order to get the impact, and that takes a while, but what I'll do is decide, and you know, you change your mind and stuff, but decide, okay, here's where the story starts. And then I fill in, so I'm going through all the notes, filling in, the bits and pieces that, so I, you know, I, to start with, everything was, I taped everything. Second of all, I transcribed everything mm. myself, which is a pain in the ass. And it, it is so essential to do your own transcription because you really, it. you really think that. Oh, I mean, well, still to this day, you would do that even with the, the well, I don't record anything anymore. I type it as I'm going because I'm, because I don't. I very rarely am in face to face with someone. But that's another issue for me is that that's why people I'm not sitting there writing notes the whole time when I'm talking to them. I'm at their dinner table. I have a tape recorder on and I'm eating, you know, potatoes and that some people would disagree with that as a strategy. Right. Like Sabrina Erdely would be like, mm -hmm. you're crossing a line. But anyway, so that I would have it all laid out and then I go through my notes and highlight the stuff that is blows my mind details and i remember the moment on that story i had to reread it to remember it but the thing that blew my mind the most was when the guy who got the heart was talking about being in the ward the transplant ward and how messed up it was that they spent their days waiting for someone to die 
And I remember him saying that going, you know, those moments where you're interviewing someone and they say something that you have never considered in your experience or your life. Words or something that's just truly blows your mind. And it might not, you know, in every story, it might not be like a ma- huge, massive mind blowing. But in this case, it was. But you know those moments when you're talking to someone and you are and you go, oh, my God. And that's always where the story starts to me. So that's why I started the story there. It's I always say this when I, you know, would talk to writers. I would say, what's the thing that when somebody tells you what you're doing right now, what's the very first thing you say as the detail of that story? And that is typically either the beginning of the first section, the beginning of the second section or the end. You know, and so this piece was a little bit easier, Dan, like than others because they were separated by people. So there was the section. So I didn't have to weave in details. I could focus completely on this person. But there were details in there, even as I reread it, that I was surprised how, I mean, so shocking detail from people talking about you know, the last thing they said to her, this ring that was arrived the day she was dying. I mean, there's just so much. So yeah, the dark jokes about watching, you know, Super Bowl traffic outside and the yeah. expectation that, oh, somebody could could be my lucky night, you know, because of uh, DUIs or drunk driving. Yeah. And also his understanding that that was sick and, and crazy. Yeah. Like he owned that and that made him human, you know, but at the same time, you understood that he, that this is how he had to look at it. I, I don't know. I just found his character to be pretty compelling. And also, you know, I was given the space to write a story that had that much detail. Hey, listen, I know you're not doing as much writing as you used to do, right? Yeah. But did you have a favorite, like, place and time when you did to do writing? Like, like, where would you go to do your best work? You mean physically? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what spot? Was it a spot in the house? Was it a Starbucks? Like, Oh, no. Always in my house. Always during the day. Always outside of the office. Always, always, always. The best writing I ever did was once I was no longer, I believe, was once I was no longer on staff at Philly Mag and was had two babies and worked in my house at my kitchen table, which I still do. Not even at my kitchen table, like at a countertop. I have offices everywhere. I'm in it right now. I never sit in here. <laughs> That's why my back's bad because I'm sitting on stools. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I've become far more as a writer. I'm faster and less crazy and less. I mean, I used to just be so obsessive about it. Not that I'm writing big long pieces like that that require that kind of time and commitment. But I'm an anywhere writer except in an office where people knock on your damn door. (laughs) Nobody likes to write in their office, right? Unless it's... I don't know. I have a decent view out my window of like a skate Mm -hmm. park. And I'm like, I don't know. Let's my mind wander. But this is not a podcast about me, thankfully. (laughs) And my skate park writing musings. Along the lines of Dan's question, you're not doing as much writing as you once were. And... When we last had a personal conversation, we were talking about new ventures and what that looks like. 
And yours is a totally outside the realms of writing in yep. you're making theater props. Yeah. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that, like how you decided to kind of walk a little bit away from the writing world. Well, I'll start there. It's funny. I never really had goals. Like, I've never been like, oh, my gosh, I have to write for Esquire. I have to write for New Yorker. I need to get I, I just don't care at all. Not even like, when you were younger, you started out. Nope. Maybe a little bit, but I didn't even read magazines. Like I'm not, uh, I fell into this where like so randomly. I wasn't even a reader. All of this was just like, I, I was, I think what I am is a storyteller. And I didn't know that until I, I think that I, I don't know. But anyhow, working in a city magazine and a commercial magazine and one like Philly mag that w is, is tough, rough and tumble, right? Like they don't mess around. They take anybody. You, nobody's safe from Philadelphia Magazine, you know, in Philadelphia. And I was getting sick and tired of people getting mad at me, looking up tax records. I, I just did not like the feelings of that. It's like it sticks to you, you know, like it's like on you. And I did not want to write like that anymore. So I did go back, you know, doing I was writing essays for a while, which I enjoyed. And then, you know, I was forced into retirement by my husband being transferred to Georgia. So, you know, you can't write for, I was on contract at Philly Mag or I was like a writer at large or I wrote for them every now and then. And then I ended up here. But I enjoy realized I enjoyed writing for alumni magazines like, like I what I liked about it is that people want to talk to you mm -hmm. they they really do and they are excited about what's happening and you're not trying to get them or you know there's no deep dark secret you're trying to uncover right and I liked that better and so you know I began doing consulting where and also, you know, when you have three children and three children is 657,000 more children than two children, that is a fact. There's no time. There would be no way I could go and do the stuff that I did then and do the, a story like this. And it's hard and I hate to write. I hate it. <laughs> it's hard. I get excited when you do like get a good story going and stuff, but a lot of it is just hard. It's hard. And so what I ended up realizing was that I, my kids are doing theater and I grew up doing theater and I, shocking that they're doing theater. Shocking that I didn't push them to, you know, do swimming where I could sit in a very, very hot, humid space and watch them in a pool for 20 seconds. <laughs> and so I went to the high school and um, they needed a person to do props. And I had actually, funny, just written for the Penn Stater about uh, Jillian Albinski, who was the prop master for The Walking Dead, who I also did theater with, and she was doing it here in, in Atlanta. So this actually, everything comes back to writing. I had written it and I was, you know, she told me what her life was like. And I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. I want to do that. Like, this is so cool. Like how she had to drive all over to find like pig blood that she could use as fake blood and like, where do you get blood and how do you call people to get blood? And I was like, what? 
It never occurred to me, like all that stuff. And like she had to, she did in Homeland, she made the vest that was the, was the suicide vest that Damian Lewis wears. And I mean, I thought that is the the coolest. I freaking love that. So I volunteered, they're like, we need a props chair. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And now I loved it. Oh my God, I love it. I think I miss my calling. It's fit, it's a whole different form of creativity. It's like a physical creativity, but it's problem solving just like writing it is. It's like a different part of the brain doing the same task. So you're still, you still have a bunch of materials in front of you. You're still trying to shape them into something that makes sense. You're still trying to do it for not a lot of money. And you like, it's all the same thing, but it's physical. And I get to be with my kids and they don't hate me. Like I can be at the school and like, and they like say hi to me when they see me. Like they don't ignore me and they're kind of happy to see me. So that's, you know, I think my priorities have changed a little bit in that I, I like that I'm doing it for ulterior motives. I did start a business though. And because somebody's got to make the money, right? But don't you miss the thrill of chasing down invoices, Vicky? I loved it. Yes, I do. You know what, Dan? There's always invoices to chase, no matter what you do. <laughs> do you have a finest work of your props? Uh, well, yeah, I raised on Krabby Patties. For the- I did, but my finest work is I made uh, Gary the Snail on a skateboard for a SpongeBob musical out of foam, fondant, and resin. Nice. Wow. I know. It's so cool. I should show you. It's amazing. But anyway, like, that doesn't mean I don't write, but I do have, like, people will send me their kids. Now I have parents say, hey, would you look at my kid's college application? College essay, that kind of stuff. There's big money there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, nobody knows how to tell a story. Nobody knows. I've sat in rooms with college or high school juniors and seniors, like, backstage, And I am an editor for always, you know, they're talking to me about how they have to write their common app essay. And I'll say, well, what are you going to write about? And then they'll say this topic and this topic. And I'll say, well, that's just a topic. You need to find a take. Like, what's your angle in that? Like, what is fresh that you're going to say? And then they'll tell me and I'm like, oh, that's fresh. Or they'll say, tell a story. And then you'll be like, oh, you know, what you should write about is this one tiny little thing you just said. That's what you need to write about. So you still get to do it all. You just don't have to chase the invoices. That's a part of it I love. I think I like editing better than than writing, but I don't want to do that either. <laughs> so I'm not Krabby Patties. I, it's so much easier to make a Krabby Patty. And it's really hard to make a Krabby Patty. So <laughs> is there anything you wanted to add about the story or my finest work that we didn't ask about? I would just say that there are lots of things that I've written that I think are awesome that I like still. And that, okay, that's a lie. There are a handful of things that I've written that I still like. You know, there's a lot of things that like I would redo. I don't know about you guys. It's like what reading your words is like hearing your voice on a recording. But I do feel like the pieces that I'm most proud of are the ones that required me to really find a structure that elicits an emotional reaction to figure out even down to the sentence structure like and I change a lot of that too in that story but down to the sentence structure like how do I write this sentence so that the impact is 
just in this small little way, it has a moment, right? And everything builds like that, that the piecing of that together, when, when that works, that happens well, I'd say there's like maybe five stories I've written that I can just appreciate for that. And this one is definitely one of them where I just know that my attention to the to the storytelling was, like I said earlier, like pure. It was pure, I think. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a great story. Vicky Glambaki, it was awesome to see you, bud. Thank you for talking about your finest work. Thank you for listening to My Finest Work. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And please reach out to us with your feedback and ideas at mfw at dogearcreative.com.